द लॉ स्कूल ऑफ अमेरिका एग्जैक्यूटिव पावर्स द प्रेसिडेंट इज हेड ऑफ द एग्जैक्यूटिव ब्रांच ऑफ द फेडरल गवर्नमेंट एंड इज कॉन्स्टिट्यूशनली ऑब्लिगेटेड टू टेक केयर दैट द लॉज बी फेथफुली एक्सिक्यूटेड The executive branch has over 4 million employees, including the military. Administrative powers. Presidents make numerous executive branch appointments, an incoming president may make up to 6,000 before taking office and 8,000 more while serving. Ambassadors, members of the cabinet, and other federal officers, are all appointed by a president with the advice and consent of a majority of the Senate. When the Senate is in recess for at least 10 days, the president may make recess appointments. Recess appointments are temporary and expire at the end of the next session of the Senate. The power of a president to fire executive officials has long been a contentious political issue. Generally, a president may remove executive officials purely at will. However, Congress can curtail and constrain a president's authority to fire commissioners of independent regulatory agencies and certain inferior executive officers by statute. To manage the growing federal bureaucracy, Presidents have gradually surrounded themselves with many layers of staff who were eventually organized into the executive office of the President of the United States. Within the executive office, the president's innermost layer of aides and their assistants are located in the White House office. The president also possesses the power to manage operations of the federal government through issuing various types of directives, such as presidential proclamation and executive orders. When the president is lawfully exercising one of the constitutionally conferred presidential responsibilities, the scope of this power is broad. Even so, these directives are subject to judicial review by US federal courts, which can find them to be unconstitutional. Moreover, Congress can overturn an executive order through legislation, for example, Congressional Review Act. Foreign Affairs. Article 2, Section 3, Clause 4 requires the president to receive ambassadors. This clause, known as the reception clause, has been interpreted to imply that the president possesses broad power over matters of foreign policy and to provide support for the president's exclusive authority to grant recognition to a foreign government. The constitution also empowers the president to appoint United States ambassadors and to propose and chiefly negotiate agreements between the United States and other countries. Such agreements, upon receiving the advice and consent of the US Senate by a two-thirds majority vote, become binding with the force of federal law while foreign affairs has always been a significant element of presidential responsibilities advances in technology since the constitution's adoption have increased presidential power where formerly ambassadors were vested with significant power to independently negotiate on behalf of the united states presidents now routinely meet directly with leaders of foreign countries commander in chief One of the most important executive powers is the president's role as commander-in-chief of the United States Armed Forces. The power to declare war is constitutionally vested in Congress, but the president has ultimate responsibility for the direction and disposition of the military. The exact degree of authority that the Constitution grants to the president as commander-in-chief has been the subject of much debate throughout history, with Congress at various times granting the president wide authority and at others attempting to restrict that authority. The framers of the Constitution took care to limit the president's powers regarding the military. Alexander Hamilton explained this in Federalist number no. 69. The president is to be commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the United States. It would amount to nothing more than the supreme command and direction of the military and naval forces, while that of the British king extends to the declaring of war and to the raising and regulating of fleets and armies, all which would appertain to the legislature. In the modern era, Pursuant to the War Powers Resolution, 
Congress must authorize any troop deployments longer than 60 days, although that process relies on triggering mechanisms that have never been employed, rendering it ineffectual. Additionally, Congress provides a check to presidential military power through its control over military spending and regulation. Presidents have historically initiated the process for going to war, but critics have charged that there have been several conflicts in which presidents did not get official declarations, including Theodore Roosevelt's military move into Panama in 1903, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the invasions of Grenada in 1983 and Panama in 1989. The amount of military detail handled personally by the president in wartime has varied greatly. George Washington, the first U.S. president, firmly established military subordination under civilian authority. In 1794, Washington used his constitutional powers to assemble 12,000 militia to quell the Whiskey Rebellion, a conflict in western Pennsylvania involving armed farmers and distillers who refused to pay an excise tax on spirits. According to historian Joseph Ellis, this was the first and only time a sitting American president led troops in the field, though James Madison briefly took control of artillery units in defense of Washington, D.C., during the War of 1812. Abraham Lincoln was deeply involved in overall strategy and in day-to-day -day operations during the American Civil War, 1861-1865. Historians have given Lincoln high praise for his strategic sense and his ability to select and encourage commanders such as Ulysses S. Grant. The present-day operational command of the armed forces is delegated to the Department of Defense and is normally exercised through the Secretary of Defense. The Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Combatant Commands assist with the operation as outlined in the Presidentially Approved Unified Command Plan, UCP. Juridical Powers and Privileges The President has the power to nominate federal judges, including members of the United States Courts of Appeals and the Supreme Court of the United States. However, these nominations require Senate confirmation before they may take office. Securing Senate approval can provide a major obstacle for presidents who wish to orient the federal judiciary toward a particular ideological stance. When nominating judges to U.S. district courts, presidents often respect the long-standing tradition of senatorial courtesy. Presidents may also grant pardons and reprieves. Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon a month after taking office. Presidents often grant pardons shortly before leaving office, like when Bill Clinton pardoned Patty Hearst on his last day in office, this is often controversial. Two doctrines concerning executive power have developed that enable the president to exercise executive power with a degree of autonomy. The first is executive privilege, which allows the president to withhold from disclosure any communications made directly to the president in the performance of executive duties. George Washington first claimed the privilege when Congress requested to see Chief Justice John Jay's notes from an unpopular treaty negotiation with Great Britain. While not enshrined in the Constitution or any other law, Washington's action created the precedent for the privilege. When Nixon tried to use executive privilege as a reason for not turning over subpoenaed evidence to Congress during the Watergate scandal, the Supreme Court ruled in United States v. Nixon, 1974 that executive privilege did not apply in cases where a president was attempting to avoid criminal prosecution. When Bill Clinton attempted to use executive privilege regarding the Lewinsky scandal, the Supreme Court ruled in Clinton v. Jones, 1997, that the privilege also could not be used in civil suits. These cases established the legal precedent that executive privilege is valid, although the exact extent of the privilege has yet to be clearly defined. Additionally, Federal courts have allowed this privilege to radiate outward and protect other executive branch employees, 
but have weakened that protection for those executive branch communications that do not involve the president. The state secrets privilege allows the president and the executive branch to withhold information or documents from discovery and legal proceedings if such release would harm national security. Precedent for the privilege arose early in the 19th century when Thomas Jefferson refused to release military documents in the treason trial of Aaron Burr and again in Totten v. United States, 1876, when the Supreme Court dismissed a case brought by a former Union spy. However, the privilege was not formally recognized by the U.S. Supreme Court until United States v. Reynolds, 1953, where it was held to be a common law evidentiary privilege. Before the September 11 attacks, use of the privilege had been rare, but increasing in frequency. Since 2001, the government has asserted the privilege in more cases than at earlier stages of the litigation, thus in some instances causing dismissal of the suits before reaching the merits of the claims, as in the Ninth Circuit's ruling in Mohammed v. Jepson Data Plan Incorporated critics of the privilege claim its use has become a tool for the government to cover up illegal or embarrassing government actions. The degree to which the president personally has absolute immunity from court cases is contested and has been the subject of several Supreme Court decisions. Nixon v. Fitzgerald, 1982, dismissed a civil lawsuit against by then-former President Richard Nixon based on his official actions. Clinton v. Jones, 1997, decided that a president has no immunity against civil suits for actions taken before becoming president, and ruled that a sexual harassment suit could proceed without delay even against a sitting president. The 2019 Mueller report on Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election detailed evidence of possible obstruction of justice, but investigators declined to refer Donald Trump for prosecution based on a United States Department of Justice policy against indicting an incumbent president. The report noted that impeachment by Congress was available as a remedy. As of October 2019, a case was pending in the federal courts regarding access to personal tax returns in a criminal case brought against Donald Trump by the New York County District Attorney alleging violations of New York state law. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. Leadership Roles Head of State As head of state, the president represents the United States government to its own people, and represents the nation to the rest of the world. For example, during a state visit by a foreign head of state, the president typically hosts a state arrival ceremony held on the South Lawn, a custom begun by John F. Kennedy in 1961. This is followed by a state dinner given by the president which is held in the state dining room later in the evening. As a national leader, the president also fulfills many less formal ceremonial duties. For example, William Howard Taft started the tradition of throwing out the ceremonial first pitch in 1910 at Griffith Stadium. Washington, D.C., on the Washington Senators' opening day. Every president since Taft, except for Jimmy Carter, threw out at least one ceremonial first ball or pitch for opening day, the All-Star Game, or the World Series, usually with much fanfare. Every president since Theodore Roosevelt has served as honorary president of the Boy Scouts of America. Other presidential traditions are associated with American holidays. Rutherford B. Hayes began in 1878 the first White House egg rolling for local children. Beginning in 1947, during the Harry S. Truman administration, every Thanksgiving the president is presented with a live domestic turkey during the annual National Thanksgiving Turkey presentation held at the White House. Since 1989, when the custom of pardoning the turkey was formalized by George H. W. Bush, the turkey has been taken to a farm where it will live out the rest of its natural life. 
presidential traditions also involve the president's role as head of government. Many outgoing presidents since James Buchanan traditionally give advice to their successor during the presidential transition. Ronald Reagan and his successors have also left a private message on the desk of the Oval Office on Inauguration Day for the incoming president. The modern presidency holds the president as one of the nation's premier celebrities. Some argue that images of the presidency have a tendency to be manipulated by administration public relations officials as well as by presidents themselves. One critic described the presidency as propagandized leadership which has a mesmerizing power surrounding the office. Administration public relations managers staged carefully crafted photo ops of smiling presidents with smiling crowds for television cameras. One critic wrote the image of John F. Kennedy was described as carefully framed in rich detail which drew on the power of myth regarding the incident of PT-109 and wrote that Kennedy understood how to use images to further his presidential ambitions. As a result, some political commentators have opined that American voters have unrealistic expectations of presidents, voters expect a president to drive the economy, vanquish enemies, lead the free world, comfort tornado victims, heal the national soul and protect borrowers from hidden credit card fees. Head of the Party The president is typically considered to be the head of his or her political party. Since the entire House of Representatives and at least one-third of the Senate is elected simultaneously with the president, candidates from a political party inevitably have their electoral success intertwined with the performance of the party's presidential candidate. The coattail effect, or lack thereof, will also often impact a party's candidates at state and local levels of government as well. However, there are often tensions between a president and others in the party with presidents who lose significant support from their party's caucus in Congress generally viewed to be weaker and less effective. Global Leader With the rise of the United States as a superpower in the 20th century, and the United States having the world's largest economy into the 21st century, the president is typically viewed as a global leader, and at times the world's most powerful political figure. The position of the United States as the leading member of NATO, and the country's strong relationships with other wealthy or democratic nations like those comprising the European Union, have led to the moniker that the president is the leader of the free world. Selection Process Eligibility Article 2, Section 1, Clause 5 of the Constitution sets three qualifications for holding the presidency. To serve as president, one must be a natural-born citizen of the United States, be at least 35 years old, be a resident in the United States for at least 14 years. A person who meets the above qualifications would, however, still be disqualified from holding the office of president under any of the following conditions. The 22nd Amendment prohibits the election of a person to a third term as president. The amendment also specifies that if any eligible person serves as president or acting president for more than two years of a term for which some other eligible person was elected president, that person can be elected president only once. Under Article I, Section 3, Clause 7, upon conviction and impeachment cases, the Senate has the option of disqualifying convicted individuals from holding federal office, including that of president. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment prohibits the election of any person as president who swore an oath to support the Constitution and later rebelled against the United States. However, this disqualification can be lifted by a two-thirds vote of each House of Congress. Campaigns and Nomination The modern presidential campaign begins before the primary elections, which the two major political parties use to clear the field of candidates before their national nominating conventions, where the most successful candidate is made the party's presidential nominee. 
Typically, the party's presidential candidate chooses a vice presidential nominee, and this choice is rubber stamped by the convention. The most common previous profession of presidents is lawyer. Nominees participate in nationally televised debates, and while the debates are usually restricted to the Democratic and Republican nominees, third party candidates may be invited, such as Ross Perot in the 1992 debates. Nominees campaign across the country to explain their views, convince voters, and solicit contributions. Much of the modern electoral process is concerned with winning swing states through frequent visits and mass media advertising drives. Election The president is elected indirectly by the voters of each state in the District of Columbia through the Electoral College, a body of electors formed every four years for the sole purpose of electing the president and vice president to concurrent four year terms. As prescribed by Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2, each state is entitled to a number of electors equal to the size of its total delegation in both houses of Congress. Additionally, the 23rd Amendment provides that the District of Columbia is entitled to the number it would have if it were a state, but in no case more than that of the least populous state. Currently, all states and the District of Columbia select their electors based on a popular election. In all but two states, the party whose presidential vice presidential ticket receives a plurality of popular votes in the state has its entire slate of elector nominees chosen as the state's electors. Maine and Nebraska deviate from this winner-take-all practice, awarding two electors to the statewide winner and one to the winner in each congressional district. On the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December, about six weeks after the election, the electors convene in their respective state capitals, and in Washington, D.C., to vote for president and, on a separate ballot, for vice president. They typically vote for the candidates of the party that nominated them. While there is no constitutional mandate or federal law requiring them to do so, the District of Columbia and 32 states have laws requiring that their electors vote for the candidates to whom they are pledged. The constitutionality of these laws was upheld in Kiafalo v. Washington, 2020. Following the vote, each state then sends a certified record of their electoral votes to Congress. The votes of the electors are opened and counted during a joint session of Congress, held in the first week of January. If a candidate has received an absolute majority of electoral votes for president, currently 270 of 538, that person is declared the winner. Otherwise, the House of Representatives must meet to elect a president using a contingent election procedure in which representatives, voting by state delegation, with each state casting a single vote, choose between the top three electoral vote-getters for president. For a candidate to win, he or she must receive the votes of an absolute majority of states, currently 26 of 50. There have been two contingent presidential elections in the nation's history. A 73-73 electoral vote tie between Thomas Jefferson and fellow Democratic-Republican Aaron Burr in the election of 1800 necessitated the first. Conducted under the original procedure established by Article 2, Section 1, Clause 3 of the Constitution, which stipulates that if two or three persons received a majority vote in an equal vote, the House of Representatives would choose one of them for president, the runner-up would become vice president. On February 17, 1801, Jefferson was elected president on the 36th ballot, and Burr elected vice president. Afterward, the system was overhauled through the 12th Amendment in time to be used in the 1804 election. A quarter century later, the choice for president again devolved to the House when no candidate won an absolute majority of electoral votes, 131 of 261, in the election of 1824. Under the Twelfth Amendment, the House was required to choose a president from among the top three electoral vote recipients, Andrew Jackson, 
John Quincy Adams, and William H. Crawford. Held February 9, 1825, this second and most recent contingent election resulted in John Quincy Adams being elected president on the first ballot. Inauguration Pursuant to the 20th Amendment, the four-year term of office for both the president and the vice president begins at noon on January 20. The first presidential and vice presidential terms to begin on this date, known as Inauguration Day, were the second terms of President Franklin D. Roosevelt and Vice President John Nance Garner in 1937. Previously, Inauguration Day was on March 4. As a result of the date change, the first term, 1933-37 of both men had been shortened by 43 days. Before executing the powers of the office, a president is required to recite the presidential oath of office, found in Article 2, Section 1, Clause 8 of the Constitution. This is the only component in the inauguration ceremony mandated by the Constitution. I do solemnly swear, or affirm, that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States, and will to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Presidents have traditionally placed one hand upon a Bible while taking the oath, and have added so help me God to the end of the oath. Although the oath may be administered by any person authorized by law to administer oaths, presidents are traditionally sworn in by the Chief Justice of the United States. The Law School of America This has been a Creative Commons licensed podcast. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America. (laughs) 